0: Scripture reading is from Matthew 28, starting in verse 11, so if you'd like to open your Bibles and follow along. Now while they were going, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priest all the things that had happened. When they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, saying, Tell them, his disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. So they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. So who raised Jesus from the dead? How many would think God the Father? Okay. How many would think the Holy Spirit? How many would think Jesus himself? you're all right. You're all right. Amazing event. The whole Trinity was involved in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In Galatians chapter 1, Paul is introducing himself and he writes this, Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. So Paul is saying God the Father raised Jesus. 1 Peter 3.18 tells us that it was a power of the Holy Spirit. He, Jesus, Peter writes, was put to death in the body but made alive in the Spirit. And then in John chapter 10 verses 17 and 18, Jesus says that he himself is going to do it. The reason my Father loves me, Jesus said, is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. How can he do that? Because wicked man could kill his body. But they could not change his eternal nature or diminish his divine power. Remember Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He has always been the resurrection and the life. Our first glimpse of that is all the way back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created. And then, of course, we read in John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was Jesus. In the beginning was a word referring to Jesus. He was with God in the beginning, Genesis 1, 1, even before that. Through him, Through Jesus, all things were made. With him, nothing was made that has been made. Jesus himself created everything on earth. Then verse 4 of John 1 says, In him was life. In him was life. Jesus gave life to all the plants and animals and finally to man and woman. So the full Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, we're all in on the resurrection of Jesus Christ because they are one. Now, you would think that after Matthew has spent 28 chapters on presenting Jesus Christ as King, 28 chapters of convincing argument that he is a son of God, he is a savior of the world, he is a reigning Lord and the glorious king of kings, you would think that he would end on a high note, expounding on his majesty and his glory and the reality of his triumphant resurrection. But he doesn't do that. He kind of ends on a downer, except for Jesus' Final words, which we know of as a great commission that we're going to be looking at next Sunday. But Matthew ends with a narrative of Israel's apostasy in a fabricated lie to discredit Jesus and discredit the resurrection. Now, what is apostasy? Apostasy is the formal disaffiliation from, abandonment of, or renunciation of a religion by a person in this case it would be the formal disaffiliation from abandonment of or renunciation of Jesus by the Jews now why would matthew do that why would he end his gospel this way it's it's almost as if this great symph- symphony of his of the gospel kind of ends in discord without resolution why would he end with a lie about the resurrection. Well, the amazing irony of it all is that the lie actually proves the resurrection. You see, the Holy Spirit knew that the resurrection was going to be attacked and that all through human history, the deceiver, Satan, the father of lies, would have to fabricate lies about the resurrection because it is the cornerstone of the Christian faith. It is the essential historical reality of our eternal hope. It is that act of God by which he confirms the saving work of Jesus Christ on the cross. It's that great reality that means that Jesus Christ is alive. In fact, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, verse 34, that Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. He is working right now on our behalf. It's the heart of Christianity. And so from the time it happened to this very day, to all the way to the end of history, the resurrection will be attacked. Almost every year or every other year, there's some new thing that they discovered that disproves the resurrection. There have been a number of different theories that have been offered over the years about uh, the hoax of the resurrection. There's the swoon theory or the semi-coma theory that says, you know, Christ never really died. On the cross, he was so traumatized and he, that he went into shock and therefore into a semi-comatose state. And they just assumed that he was dead. So they put him in the grave, but you know all those spices, that aromatic aroma that, that he was all wrapped in and the coolness of the tomb revived him. Well, that theory doesn't really work well. First of all, that idea didn't even come up until a man by the name of Venturini first thought it up 1,600 years after the fact. Secondly, all the early records are emphatic about Jesus being dead. And everybody knows the Romans were very proficient at execution, especially by crucifixion. They had already crucified over 30,000 Jews. They knew what they were doing. They had no question that he was dead. That's why they didn't break his legs. Thirdly, Jesus would have had to have successfully survived severe lacerations to his body, crucifixion, a spear thrust into his side, up into his heart. That's why the water and blood poured out. The heart had already stopped. Then being entombed with about 75 pounds of spices, wrapping up his body, three days with no food or water, suddenly woke up without any medical assistance, having lost most of his blood, walked over, pushed the stone away, overpowered the guards, and announced himself to be alive. And then... He walked seven miles to Emmaus on feet that had just recently been pierced through with huge metal spikes. Clearly that theory wasn't thought through really well. Then there's a non-burial theory. There's some through history who have said, you know, Christ was never put in the tomb in the first place, so you shouldn't be surprised if they don't find him there. He was just thrown into the pit for executed criminals. We, we, We talked about that, kind of prophesied in the Old Testament. He was never in the tomb. Well, that theory doesn't work either because then you have to answer a question, so why did the leaders seal the tomb when nobody was in it? And why did they put a guard over the tomb with nobody in it? And then why would they invent the lie that the body was stolen if they knew where they had thrown it to be burned in the, in the, uh, in the fire? And then there's a the hallucination theory. That says all the appearances of Jesus were not real. They were just hallucinations. The disciples wanted to see him so badly that they just thought they saw him. Now that doesn't work really well either. Would they have died as martyrs for an hallucination? How could the church be built on hallucination and last? And did 500 people who all saw him at the same moment in time all have the same hallucination and the biggest question where was the corpse it was if it was a hallucination the body would still be there in the tomb and then there's the telepathy theory that there was no physical resurrection but God sent back mental images to his disciples so they would think that Jesus had risen from the dead But that theory doesn't work either because it makes God to be a liar and a deceiver. And it founds Christianity on deceit, making liars out of the disciples for for claiming to have touched and actually held Jesus. It must have been a telepathic movie, right? Because it, it lasted for seven miles into Emmaus as he was talking with disciples and a telepathic movie that could prepare fish over a fire for the breakfast of uh, some of the disciples by by the Sea of Galilee. Again, where was the body? If it was just a telepathy, the body would have still been there. And then there is the seance theory that says that a medium conjured up the spirit of the dead Jesus by occult power. But again, that, that doesn't work. How was the tomb empty, and where was a corpse, and how could they have touched him? And then there was a mistaken identity theory, another effort to explain away the resurrection. Somebody impersonated Jesus. This is actually the theory that Islam uses often. That's a pretty high price for a false impersonation for somebody to take that on themselves and how do you explain him walking through closed doors how do you explain him having breakfast there by the sea of galilee how do you explain him appearing and vanishing and how do you explain him ascending into heaven on a cloud with everybody watching besides that disciples knew jesus well well enough not to be fooled and the question still remains where would the body be there are a number of other foolish ideas as well, including the evaporation theory. Jesus, Jesus' body just dissolved into gas and kind of evaporated. People have gotten very desperate over the years to explain away the crucifixion. But there's one more that is really the best of the bad, and that is the theft theory. It's really been the most popular one through the centuries, and that's the fact, or the fact, that's the theory that Jesus' body was stolen. And that's the only one that really explains where the body was or wasn't. But then you have to ask the question, well, who, who stole the body? The Jews? Well, they'd never do that. They weren't about to fabricate a resurrection of Jesus. That was, that's what they were working against. They were the ones that had the tomb sealed, the Romans guard put there so that the body would not disappear. Well, maybe it was the Romans. Maybe they were the ones that stole the body. No, the Romans had nothing to gain by stealing the body. In fact, the Roman soldiers were afraid for their own life when the body was gone because they knew what the penalty was if the body that they were supposed to be guarding up and disappeared. Well, that only leaves the disciples, right? And that's the popular view. The first question you'd have to ask, though, is would they steal the body? They didn't really believe that Jesus was going to rise. We talked about that last week. They were doubting, struggling, fearful, confused. They were in hiding. They had scattered when Jesus was captured. Even their leader, Peter, was a strong denier of Christ. And when the women told them about the resurrection... According to Luke twenty four eleven, it says they did not believe the women. The disciples did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Besides, would they steal the body, then go out and die as martyrs for a lie, for deceit? I mean, Peter had denied Jesus when he was alive. Why in the world would he die over a lie? And how would they or could they have stolen the body? Uh, Are they going to be able to overpower the Roman soldiers? By the way, when Pilate told the Jewish leaders to take a Roman guard for the temple, he was not referring to one soldier. We think a guard, one. A Roman guard was a group consisting of six to twelve soldiers. How were the disciples going to defeat all of them or deceive them? Well, so, uh, the t- disciples uh, or the soldiers, maybe, maybe they all fell asleep. Seriously? This is an important responsibility for them. Six to 12 of them all at the same time falling asleep? And none of them would have woken up at the scraping and grinding of the huge stone as the disciples tried to roll that away and, and, st- and, and take the body away? But this is the very lie that Matthew deals with at the end of his gospel. The chief priest concocted a lie that his body was stolen. And I believe this becomes a greatest validation of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And an exclamation point, actually, in Matthew's gospel. Now remember, the evil religious leaders of Israel had desperately tried to eliminate Jesus. They started out using mass murder when he was born, to kill him as a child, and they massacred many babies. Then they used curses and accusations and demonic uh, power to try to discredit Him. They use betrayal to capture Him. They use injustice to sentence Him. They use blackmail to get Him executed. They use force to keep His body in the tomb. And now they use bribery bribery and lying to silence the truth of His resurrection. Every imaginable wicked means to prevent Jesus Christ from accomplishing the purposes of God. Now, the plot unfolds a little earlier in this chapter. Last week we talked about the f- First eyewitnesses, a group of women who were there, and they saw the angel and saw the probably saw the stone being rolled back, and they saw the empty tomb. But there was a second group of eyewitnesses as well, and that was the guard of six to twelve soldiers that were there. Both groups were terrified. The soldiers fell over in a dead faint. The women, though terrified, were comforted by the angel and were given a message to go tell the disciples that Jesus was alive. He was no longer there. And that's where we pick up our story here about what happened with the soldiers. These soldiers finally came to, and verse 11 pulls that narrative together. It says, while the women were on their way, on their way to tell the disciples, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. is that Interesting. So you've got a group of believers and a group of non-believers reporting the same thing, the same events. The guards had to have talked about it together and decided what to do. And they decided that probably about half of the guards, they ought to run over to to the high priest and talk to them. Um, Why did they go to the chief priests first? Because they were the ones who wanted to be sure that Jesus stayed in that grave. They were the ones who had made Pilate set a guard there in the first place. They would probably be the ones that would know what to do in this kind of situation. If anyone could get them from being executed by Pilate for shirking their duty, the chief priest could. So they go tell them everything, which means the Jews knew all the details. They were told that there was an earthquake. Earthquake. I'd be surprised if they hadn't felt it because the, the tomb was right outside the city walls, and that was the epicenter. It was a it was a great earthquake, a mega seismos. Scripture says they were told about the rolling stone. They were told that there had been this blazing angel, and, and, and the body was gone. And after the angel had left, the women uh, had left, and the women had left. I'm pretty sure the soldiers probably would have peeked into that tomb. They would have seen the grave clothes lying there, absent. Of the body and they knew that this was exactly what the Jews had feared that on the third day he'd be gone and it had happened exactly as they had feared. You know what's interesting? the chief priests then were the first ones to hear the message of the resurrections from the eyewitnesses. The tomb was right next next to the walls of Jerusalem. The ladies had to go probably at least a couple miles before they got to the disciples. And the soldiers were truthful about it. It says they reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. Now you would have thought, you would have thought that they would have, that would have shaken them up enough to go check it out for themselves, right? But their minds were so darkened and so hardened that they didn't want to know the truth. The news brought fear and panic when it should have brought repentance and faith. They didn't even question the soldiers. They never even investigated. They just quickly fabricated a plot. Look at verse 12. And when they were assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, assembled and taken counsel, That's technical language that means that they had a formal meeting of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin, the ruling body consisting of the 70 leaders of Israel, although at this time I think probably only 68, minus Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. So they assembled and made a formal resolution passed by a formal meeting of the Sanhedrin, the same group that had condemned Jesus. So you can imagine the chief priests testifying to the rest of the Sanhedrin after what they had heard from the, the uh, guards. Hey, we've got a problem. We've got a big problem. We've just been told that Jesus is no longer in the grave. And there was an earthquake and a stone was removed without any human being and there was a blazing brilliant angel and, and it frightened the soldiers to the point where they fell over as if they were dead. And when they came to, he was gone. The grave clothes were still there right where his body would have been. They actually discussed it and talked about it, and all 68 came to the conclusion or made a decision together, and here, here was their decision. They gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you are to say. His disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. Unbelievable. The rejection of the Messiah becomes complete. They rejected the Messiah at his birth. They rejected the Messiah during his life. They rejected his miracles and his words. They nailed him to the cross. And now to top it off, they reject his resurrection and lie about the evidence. This is the ultimate apostasy. The formal disaffiliation from abandonment of or renunciation of the Messiah by the Jews. Matthew's Gospel is not only about the majesty of the king, which it is, but it's also about the rejection of the king. So that ruling body of Israel, by formal vote, established a resolution. and The resolution had three parts. Part one, bribe the soldiers. That's what we have to do first. Kind of like hush money, right? Don't tell people what really happened. They gave them, it says, a large sum of money. It actually used the word silver, referring to silver coins, and a lot of it. Now, they had given Judas, what, 30 30 pieces of silver, and Judas was a willing participant. Judas came to them. There were up to 12 soldiers, so it had to be a lot more to convince them to lie because they could not have had the rumor, they, they couldn't have that rumor running around that Jesus had been raised from the dead. And they couldn't allow the soldiers to spread that news. So they had to make it worth their while. The second part was to actually get the soldiers to lie. To make them spread a lie. Verse 13, you are to say, okay, you are to spread this as you talk to people. His disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. They had to say something because the grave was empty and this was a lie that made the most sense to them. So the soldiers basically became preachers of the anti-resurrection. It's interesting as soon as the disciples get the message, they start preaching the resurrection. As soon as the soldiers get got their money, they start preaching <clears throat> the disciples stole the body. This then becomes a conflict that resulted in the persecution of the church. This is why the Sanhedrin in the book of Acts said to the preachers of the resurrection, the apostles, stop preaching. You have filled all Jerusalem with this doctrine. We won't tolerate. We're going to punish you. We're going to whip you. We're going to throw you in jail if you continue. Why? Because they had hired men to preach the opposite. And they were invested in this lie. Then the third part was to protect the soldiers. If they were going to have these guys lie, they were going to have to have their backs, right? Because if Pilate found out they had lost the body while they were supposed to be guarding it, uh, no doubt cost them their lives. So in verse 14 it says, If this report gets back to the governor, the high priests are telling all the soldiers, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. They knew they had Pilate under, their, under his thumb. They had blackmailed him so many times already. They knew they could control him. Remember when he wanted, they wanted him to crucify Jesus and Pilate didn't want to do it because over and over he says, he is innocent, he is innocent. And the Jewish letter says, hey, we're going to go tell Caesar if you don't do this for us. So the plot is established, they're going to lie about the resurrection. Then verse 15 says, so the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. You see, for them, facts didn't matter. Their agenda mattered. It's easy to ignore the facts and lie to accomplish what you want. And that's what they did. That's exactly what the leaders did back then. And a lot of Jews bought into it. And this story, Matthew goes on in verse 15, has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. And when Matthew wrote this gospel, it was 60 uh, 60 A.D., 25 years after the resurrection of, of Christ. And 25 years after... That story was still being told and disseminated among the Jews. The disciples stole his body. A century later, a hundred years later, a man by the name of Justin Martyr, you've probably heard his name, he wrote this, you, the Jews, selected men and sent them into all the world proclaiming that a certain atheistic and lawless sect had arisen from one Jesus, a Galilean deceiver. Whom we crucified, but his disciples stole him by night from the tomb and deceived men by saying that he has risen from the dead and ascended into heaven. So a hundred years later, same story being told around. The prevailing lie. And it's still the common lie that's being told today. That was the last Jewish insult against the Messiah. The Jewish nation totally rejecting their king. And then just a matter of days later, God called the church to be his people. And Israel is set aside in judgment until her purifying is complete. We've talked about that. God's got, still got something special for the Jews. So the narrative of the lie about the resurrection then is complete. But what's, what's the point here? Why does Matthew do this? Why did he end the gospel in such a negative way? Wouldn't it have been better to focus on the glory of the triumph of the resurrection? Couldn't he have presented proof of the resurrection rather than a lie about it? Could have. Mark, Luke, and John all did. They write about the empty tomb, they write about the grave clothes lying perfectly there, they they write about the earthquake, the the stone removed, the angel, they write about Jesus appearing and people touching him and eating with him and walking with him and talking with him. They write about the fact that over 500 people saw him at the same time. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 even writes about that. They write about at least 10 appearances. You've got Mary Magdalene, the other women, Peter, two on the road to Emmaus, 12 on a Sunday evening and the 12 again a week later, seven in Galilee by the sea, 500 in Galilee saw him, James saw him, 11 on the Mount of Olives saw him ascend. Matthew knows all that, but he wants to put the proof in the mouth of, of Jesus' lying enemies. It's really quite an amazing approach if you think about it. For us who believe Mark, Luke, and John's approach works well, it's exciting. It reconfirms, it reconvinces us that Jesus definitely did rise. People have seen him, they've touched him, they've talked with him. But for skeptics, Matthew's approach is much more convincing You see, it was impossible for the Jewish leaders to deny that Christ had, by some supernatural means, left the grave. They couldn't admit to that. They couldn't deny that. They didn't even try to, so they had to lie about it. There were only two options for them. They either had to say it was a supernatural event, and he was gone, or they had to say somebody stole him. So naturally, the leaders chose option number two. Somebody stole him. Had to be the disciples. We'll just lie. Now, anybody reading this honestly would have to say, this is absolutely ridiculous. The whole thing is so stupid, it's self-condemned. And that's Matthew's point, point, to point out the stupidity of it all. By doing this, Matthew proves the resurrection from the lips of his lying enemies. Simon Greenleaf, former Harvard professor of law, once wrote, All that Christianity asks of men is that they would be consistent with themselves, that they would treat its evidences as they treat the evidences of other things, and that they would try to judge its actors and witnesses as the deal... With their, as they deal with their fellow men when testifying to human affairs and actions in human tribunals. The result would be, he says, an undoubting conviction of their integrity, ability, and truth. But if you don't want to believe the truth, you have to lie. He's saying just apply normal logic and reasoning, and understanding, and you'll come up with the fact that Jesus did indeed rise from the dead. The facts demand it, and folks, our eternity (laughs) demands it. If Jesus is dead and never rose, we're all damned. A person who rejects these explicit facts and therefore rejects the resurrection is foolish and sentences their own soul to eternal damnation. But the fact of the matter is, As the angel said, he is not here. He is alive. He is risen. And in John 14, 19, Jesus himself says, because I live, you also will live. Paul says in Romans 10, verse 9, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, what? That God raised him from the dead. That's essential. Then you'll be saved. Why is that important? Because it's it's only through the resurrection that we can have the new life. What are we saved from? We're saved from sin and eternal damnation. What will we we receive? Forgiveness and eternal life. Last Sunday, we sang, Death cannot keep its prey, Jesus my Savior. He tore the bars away, Jesus my Lord. Up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph o'er his foes. He arose a victor o'er the dark domain and he lives forever with his saints to reign, all of that is founded on the resurrection. That's our hope. And that's our life. Years ago, R.A. Torrey, second president of Moody Bible Institute, told this story about experience that he had. And he wrote this, I was standing before the window of an art store where a picture of the crucified Christ was on exhibition as I stood on the sidewalk and gazed, I was conscious of the approach of another, and turning, beheld a a little lad gazing intently at the picture. I noticed that he was a little street child. I thought I could speak to him, so I asked, pointing to the picture, "'Do you know who he is?' "'Yes, that's my Savior,' he said with a mingled look of pity and surprise that I should not know what the picture represented.' With an evident desire to enlighten me further, he continued after a pause, them's the soldiers, the Roman soldiers. And with a long drawn sigh, he said, that woman crying is his mother. He waited apparently for me to question him further, then thrust his little hands into his pockets and with a reverent and subdued voice and a little tear in his eye said, they killed him, mister. Yes, sir. They killed him. I looked at the little ragged fellow and said, Where did you learn this? He replied, At the Mission Sunday School. Full of thoughts regarding the benefits of Mission Mission Sunday Schools, I turned and resumed my walk, leaving the lad looking still at the picture. I hadn't walked a block when I heard a childish voice say, Mr. Mr.? I turned, he was running toward me, then he paused. Up went his little hand, and with a triumphant sound in his voice and a radiant face, he said, I forgot to tell you. He rose again. His message delivered, he smiled, waved his hand, turned, and went his way. Folks, it's not enough to have him on the cross. Can't forget to say he rose again. And that's the message we have to give to those that are around us. That's the message that we have to live that victorious life because he lives. We live in him. It's power and prayer. Father, thank you. Thank you for the resurrection. My goodness, thank you for the resurrection. Jesus is alive. Because he lives, we too can live. And Father, that's that's the message we have. That's the solution that we have for all of mankind. That's the solution that you provided for all of mankind. And Father, I pray that we would not be satisfied, even looking at an empty cross and saying, Yes, this, this is wonderful. But Father, I pray that you would lay it on our hearts, like you did that little boy. See, I forgot to tell you, he is risen. He is alive. And Father, I pray that you would do that new work in us, that we would take that resurrection truth. We've looked at the lie that's been perpetrated, and, and just looking at it, it's, it's obvious that that just shows the proof of the fact that Jesus did indeed rise from the dead. And I pray that we will go forth with boldness to tell that message to those that are around us, that Jesus is alive, and because he lives, they too can live. In Jesus' name, Amen.